Welcome to Enrichment Today podcast, hosted by Dr. Amy Christine Blancid. This podcast covers topics to build stability and find tranquility in your life. Join us to discuss topics to improve your financial health, change your limiting beliefs, improve your wellness, and so much more, all to increase your self-sufficiency. If you like this podcast, make sure to follow the Enrichment Today podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and follow the Drew Lewis Foundation on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. You can also check us out on our websites, enrichmenttoday.org and drewlewis.org. Now sit back, relax, and learn to break some crayons with us. Good morning, and thanks for joining us on Enrichment Today. My guest is Sean Askinosi, and today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, dark chocolate. Morning, Sean. How are you doing? I'm great. Good to be here. Yeah. So... Uh, first, let's start with um, how we know each other. Uh, we both had the privilege of knowing my late husband, Drew Lewis. You got to know him uh, longer than I did. So if you'd like to share um, how you two became uh, acquainted and, you know, if you have any fun stories you want to share about him, uh, go ahead too. I think my, you know, I've known Drew since he was probably, I don't know, three or four years old or maybe younger. I was older than Drew and he was my brother Jason's um, age. And um, I knew Drew's older brother, Russ, and of course his parents. And we traveled together. I won't forget this. We traveled together in the late 60s to Boulder, Colorado because our dads were both lawyers. and they were going to an estate planning seminar in Boulder, Colorado. And so we vacationed together. And, <clears throat> you know, I mean, Russ, I mean, Russ was the person that I really looked up to. Um, he was kind of a hero figure to me. And so we would um, kind of view Drew as the little brother and like my little brother. But, um, you know, the Lewis family, uh, you know, are just very, very special people. And um, of course, I knew Drew's mom uh, before she died. And, um, you know, I knew Drew even through college and then when he in, in his real estate career, and he helped me and my family with real estate needs, you know, in Springfield. And um, I just, I always had a, a feeling about Drew that he was a very hard worker. He was very diligent. He was very successful. And when he got sick, he became um, almost a kind of larger than life figure. And I think that one of the reasons that he, he, he was, he was so larger than life during his illness is because it wasn't Drew. It was, um, it was Drew and you. So it was kind of like this, um, the, the joining together of souls in this um, experience of pain and sorrow um, and joy um, and more pain and more sorrow, which culminated, you know, in this image in my mind you know, at um, Drew's funeral, um, when you were wearing your wedding dress. And 
that's a that's an image that you know I I I, I won't ever forget. But it, it's an image of you both, um, and that's what love is. Love is um, the lack of separation, and that's what where I think the inspiration of you and Drew, um, for many people, um, especially me, is born. It's really in this expression of love in the midst of pain and what it can look like. And that, that's where I really think this lasting legacy of Drew and you um, resides. Uh, that is beautiful and touching. Um, and one of the best ways I've heard our story summarized. Sean, thank you. That's that is true. He's, he was an amazing, amazing person. And uh, I was very lucky to, to find someone who put me on a pedestal and loved and honored me in the same way that him and especially um, his kids. And yeah, it was, it was an amazing, amazing time in my life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, thank you for you know, those experiences that you had and are continuing to have, um, in my view, are eternal. So the relationship with his children and how this, all of it carries on, you know, it's carrying on, carrying on in your work with the Drew Lewis Foundation and your work with people in poverty and your work in education. It's all <clears throat> part of a thread that, you know, begins in this one place and is still present to this day. You know, you can see the thread right there. Yeah. And it's continuing on and on and on. And that's what's so special about it is because it never ends. It's eternal. That's one thing that's, um, you know, with the Drew Lewis Foundation and what we do, um, I had read someone else talking about losing someone in their life. And the fear that they had was that um, people would keep, quit speaking their name. So after someone dies, a lot of people don't know how to speak to you. You know, you lost your father. You went through this at a young age to where uh, it's like, I don't know how to relate. If I say his name, is that too sensitive? Um, and so it's almost people avoid saying the name of, of a person who's been lost. And it's like, no, no, please, like, tell me, tell me their stories, speak their name. Because um, yeah, there's that saying is, you know, you die twice, the, the time that you die and the, and the last time that your name is spoken. Um, and so being able to carry on his honor and what we do and the work of the Drew Lewis Foundation has been important for me, for his family, for his children, um, in a sense of, like you mentioned, that that thread continues and uh, it honors who he was and how he saw the world. Um, just this amazing opportunist and, and optimist. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge loss that uh, more people don't get to know and have experienced him. Right, exactly. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about, um, you know, the Drew Lewis Foundation. We really look at ourselves as an idea of a social enterprise. Um, how can we address poverty, but also how do we do it in a way that um, creates some sustainability? We have amazing donors, but we also look at ways that we can create um, value and product into the world. And you have a for-profit that has amazing social enterprise. Um, you do a lot of things that you don't have to do, but because of that, you've made an amazing story. Um, and your product is amazing, but stories also are so important when we, when we look at brand loyalty and that sort. So if you want to share a bit with us about um, how Askenosi Chocolate came about and um, kind of how you guys have drawn into that mission. The, the company Askenosi Chocolate is 
a bean to bar chocolate factory with about 21 employees. So we're a really small business. And my daughter, Lauren, is a co-owner in the business with me now. And she's our chief marketing officer and lives in Austin and helps me run the company and really has since she was 16. Um, but um, the company is built on this idea of establishing relationships with farmers who grow cocoa beans. And the, the idea is something that we call direct trade. And I learned about it from uh, the coffee industry, which really pioneered the idea of direct trade, in particular a company by the name of Intelligentsia Coffee based in Chicago. They've been mentors of mine for a long time and helped me, gosh, 15 years ago, sort of develop this model of direct trade, which is going to visit the farmers and looking at the quality of the beans, uh, being concerned about organic farming practices um, and making sure the farmers are paid fairly and ethically, that, that the product is sourced ethically. Most important for us, which is a little different than other direct trade models, is we share profits with our farmers. We open our books to them uh, in their language. So I made my first trip to origin. I went to Tanzania in May. It was my first trip since the you know what started. And um, when I went there, our, our financials were in Swahili, which is the way we've done it ever since we've started. So we, we will you know, share this with farmers. We pay them more than they would otherwise receive. And um, then in some cases, we have community development projects like we do in Tanzania. We just um, funded the construction of a preschool in the village that opened January of 2020. And we have an after-school program for girls and boys called Empowered Girls um, and Enlightened Boys. And since we started that program, we've had over 7,000 young people graduate from that program in and around the yeah. village. I could go on and on, but it's it's small. So we're not, you know, I, I don't want to mislead anyone. We're not moving the needle. This is, I mean, these these issues that we're facing are 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 massive. But we're just, you know, we see our our place in it, in our part, and we're fulfilling that role. And as you said, we're for profit, but we. We started, you know, doing these projects really just as a project of the for-profit company, and we use the Community Foundation of the Ozarks, which I know you um, have been able to utilize for years. And I always say that's a poor person's nonprofit because in the beginning we didn't have a, you know, five hundred one c three. We just had donors who who helped us, who who shared our passion for this work, um, and they would, you know, put money into an account at the Community Foundation and. Brian Fogle, God bless him, would help, you know, come up with a, a creative way that we could have this partnership. And so, you know, that's really um, in a kind of a longer version nutshell of, of who we are as a company. Um, and one of the things that I say a lot and I've written about is I say, it's not about the chocolate, it's about the chocolate. And so what I mean by that is, this is about the chocolate. I mean, we're, we're making a chocolate bar. We sell it around the world. We sell to stores around the United States. We sell online. We want it to be the best tasting chocolate that it possibly can be. We're absolutely laser, laser focused on the quality of the product, on innovation in the product, um, making sure we have the right equipment, the right people, and the right craft. Um, and then on the other hand, it has nothing to do with chocolate. Um, it has to do with relationships. It has to do with everything that I said about you and Drew 
in the beginning of this conversation. That's what it has to do with. Yeah. It's not chocolate. It has to do with open-heartedness. It has to do with what Joseph Campbell said, um, that we're called to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world. That's what it's about. That's powerful. I, I was, while you were talking, I was listening diligently, but also thinking, uh, you mentioned a, a number of things where you do business practices where um, you don't make as much money because you choose to do these practices. Have you ever put pen to paper or just thought about um, if your focus was simply making as much money for Sean Askinosi as possible, um, how much do you give back? How much more could you have taken for yourself uh, as, as unfortunately many, many people do? That's a, that's a great question. And I've not been asked that before. Um, and interestingly, you know, I haven't taken pen to paper to, to even really sort of calculate what that might be. And one of the things I really advocate for entrepreneurs in the for-profit space is to resist the um, temptation to silo this idea of participating um, in the sorrow, joyfully participating in the sorrows of the world. That is to engage in the community. You know, what we what, what happens often in growing companies is eventually either the marketing department, which, which sponsors, you know, the 10K or, you know, they become a, you know, platinum level sponsor for the whatever. That's the marketing department often um, because sure, the company should get nice press for being, you know, good community citizens or it's, you know, a department that back in the 1960s, it was started by uh, or really congregated by lawyers called CSR. Um, and these, these CSR departments now are called ESG departments, essentially, but it was risk management. It was lawyers involved in risk management. Um, and so that siloed this idea of, quote, doing good or engaging in the community. And what I advocate is to diffuse all of that throughout the company that you can, including yourself. So like as an entrepreneur founder, I don't want to segregate and say, okay, on Mondays, I'm going to work with people who need me in Tanzania and, uh, and make no money, you know, doing it. And then on Fridays, when I have a little bit of extra time, I'll work on you know, whatever it is that I'm working on here in the U.S., like uh, working with classes at Pipkin or whatever. And what I want to do is just make it more messy than that and more disorganized and more and sometimes anxiety inducing because um, I feel like it gives, um, there are greater opportunities for um, not segregating it such that you end up calculating the answer to the question that you posed. In other words, I don't wanna ask the question. I want to be, yeah. I mean, I'm, look, I, I wouldn't mind knowing the answer. I mean, it would be kind of, because <laughs> believe me, especially in the last, few years as I'm, I'm 61 now. I mean, I don't know how much longer I'll do this. I, I, I've been doing this almost as long as I practiced law, but I'm aware, I've become more aware of the, um, quote, value of the company as an entity as valued by, you know, the world of accountants and um, their types. And so, 
when I see that, I'm like, gosh, really? You know, that, huh, that's surprising. And so, but I don't, I, I'm, it's, it's, it's interesting, but I don't want to be um, put in the position where it would be really easy for me to calculate the so-called sacrifice because it yeah. isn't a sacrifice. Yeah. It's hard, but it is. And let me say, let me just say too, something you said in your question before, the, the question just before this last question, and that is, you said, you know, you do things that you don't have to do. I used to think that probably, let's say five years ago, I, I thought that maybe that's true. Now, I don't think that's true. I actually believe that business, I don't care if you're the tire shop, if you're the insurance broker, if you're the hospital, I don't, I don't care. You have to do this. It is yeah. businesses small, medium, and large, it is the business's responsibility to intersect in social issues and solve problems as best we can, period, end of story. And we are uniquely suited right now in this place and time with some measure of trust as business people, which actually, according to recent research exceeds that of other institutions that were more trustworthy than business people just five or 10 years ago. And so I now think it's actually an imperative for business. Mm -hmm. we, have, yeah. we have no choice. We have to do this. Well, we're saying what I love about having uh, two individuals who are entering the workforce right now, and then the many families that we work with that um, are getting new education, looking for new careers, that um, there's, there's finally a conversation about workplace environments in a way that people have probably always been fighting for, but it seems a conversation now um, the employees are winning. So if you, um, you know, if you don't have culture, if you don't have respect, there's finally now, sadly, it's taken you know, workforce shortages and all these things in order to realize the quality of life of an employee matters and why we're why this conversation continues on productivity increases when individuals are respected in their job they're vested in the company and especially when your company has the type of mission and values that you've instilled in your company to where people are seeing that their work yeah you're making a chocolate bar but you said you're small but that chocolate bar is influencing how many people's lives in how many countries. And then when you think about the long-term effect of that, you're improving one farmer's life or several farmers, which is gonna change their relatives. It changes their children. It changes a generation and it begins to change a shift in a dynamic and a belief and value of this can be done better and differently. And then you're producing a product that people want because one, it tastes amazing, but they also know that by buying it, they're involved in something bigger than themselves. And that's what my kids are looking for. The individuals that are now in the workforce, like, yeah, I'm, my daughter's driven by money. She's potentially gonna make a career change with a different hospital because they're gonna pay more. But she also is really weighing quality of life in that decision. And the quality of life factor will be bigger for her than the financial and the respect she'll receive it at the office and that sort. Um, and so it's just, it, it's amazing that I also have staff that I feel great that I've made an environment where my staff can come to me and say, 
hey, I want this new education, but it might mean that I'm going to leave the company in the future. I'm like, great, better your life, better your children's lives, better our community. If we can be a place that you feel you have what it takes to be a better version of you and a better version in our community, I completely support that. Um, and so, yeah, we, we often have turnover because someone can make more doing something else, but it's because we gave them the foundation to have the ability to get that education, to make that change in our community. And we've, I hope that what I'm seeing is that, you know, more companies are changing to that because they know that that's what it's going to take to keep employees. I think so too. And I'm glad you mentioned this about young people, because what I'm seeing over the years and working with Chocolate University students in Southwest Missouri, especially in our high school program, <clears throat> where it's sort of a business immersion program, juniors and seniors, and it culminates with us taking them to Tanzania to meet cocoa farmers. And what I'm seeing in, especially in the selection process for students, is even over the last 10 years, I would say there's really a heightened level of self-awareness among you know, juniors and seniors in high school that I didn't see even 10 years ago. Yeah. And I'm really heartened by that. I'm, it gives me great hope and optimism because, um, that, and that's really the best way I can describe it, just a greater self-awareness. Yes. Um, a, a connection to self, um, to essential being um, that really might not have been as, um, as it was, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, I see, you know, 18 year olds that are way more self-aware than 50 year olds. <laughs> yeah. and, and so that gives me great hope. I also think that we have to be really careful as business owners to not expect employees to um, make a um, trade-off between mission and um, livelihood or compensation. And I think sometimes, especially earlier in the movement for social entrepreneurship, and I hate that term and I've removed it from the website about five or six years ago. Um, but in that movement, you know, there was this notion among business, and business big and small. I mean, um, it happened with um, um, the guy who started WeWork, you know, where you know, oh, you're, you're, this is bigger than you. So give me more and I'm going to pay you less, but you're going to love it because you're part of this thing. That's, you know, quote, bigger than, yes. the, the bigger than us. And so I've been really mindful, especially in the last five years to not expect employees to make that trade-off because I think that's a trap. Um, and I, I think there are many traps like that that we could talk about for probably another hour or two. Or well, the, the entire nonprofit world. Well, <laughs> exactly. Yes. We're a nonprofit. You have a, a bleeding heart. Yep. Um, come work for us for as little as possible. And we're going to you know, serve others, even though you now qualify for the benefits that we're making sure that others can access. Absolutely. I recently had a conversation um, with another nonprofit leader who was saying, man, these, uh, these minimum wage rates have to stop going up because I can't keep an employee. And I was like, uh, my employees aren't affected by minimum wage going up because we looked at median income across the country and we made sure we paid our staff well. And so minimum wage going up 
should not be affecting your staff just because you're a nonprofit. Um, so yeah, I mean, the nonprofit world is notorious for we serve others, therefore, you know, you must make no money, but you have a big heart. Um, and yeah, we have massive turnover because a big heart doesn't feed your children. Exactly. And I th and, and, and it's, there are so many things like that where we think if we, you know, do, if we sort of hoodwink, I almost call it that, you know, an employee into thinking that, you know, they, whether it be transparency or whatever, that we're going to be able to extract, you know, another level of productivity from them as we dangle this carrot in front of them. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I've, and, you know, I tend, I tend to get on something and then I'm like on it, you know, for like a yes. year, I'll read everything about it. And I, you know, and I, I think that's probably not uncommon among entrepreneurs and you may do the same thing, but I'm, but I'm really, really watching this um, issue very carefully because um, the entire employment landscape is changing, mm -hmm. changing. It's, it's fast changing the whole thing with the great resignation and even the title of like the title of my book, you know, meaningful work. I would have, I probably wouldn't call it meaningful work now um, because I don't want an employee to trade what they need for their families for so-called meaningful work. Now I don't advocate that in the book, but, but I'm just, I'm very, very sensitive to it. I'm sensitive to what the relationship is between employee, employer, and what that's going to look like in the future. And, you know, why are we measuring the health of our country with, you know, this outdated GDP um, type of number? And it's not fair. It's not a very small group of individuals. And that's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So I think, you know, this is a whole topic. Thank you for raising it, because I just think it's important to be sensitive to making sure that employees have what we can give them. And you know what, like you said earlier, if I can't pay them more, um, and they have another opportunity, I want them to take it. Yeah. I want them to be able to provide for their families and to live a life that that is the life that they want to live, you know, yeah. their hopes and dreams. So, yeah. I, I love surrounding myself with other CEOs, other leaders um, who their focus is the quality of life and, and celebrating with others. Um, so, yeah, you have this great opportunity I applaud you. That's, that is amazing. And I'm glad that I was one part of your story to help you feel empowered or, you know, the advocacy that it took for you to, to make that next step. And I think when we have that conversation in the workplace, and if you're, you know, and if our listeners are lucky enough to work for someone like that, um, you know, it changes the, the respect that you have for your employer. It means that you're going to, instead of giving two weeks notice and, and presenteeism and, and stepping out, it really empowers an employee to say, I'm respected here. And the way that I'm going to leave the company is going to be in a most respectful way as well. And uh, it just, it creates a dynamic that I didn't even realize I was creating um, staff, you know, kept saying how much they like working here. And it was like, well, you know, what's happening and they have autonomy and they know that we're going to celebrate. And they know that if they need to an extra mental health day to show up the next day and be there, like, I don't care as long as you have a good, you know, quality of life at home so that you're coming into the office and the work is getting done. 
you know, these boundaries that we've set of what a workplace looks like have, have really post, you know, during COVID and now post COVID been shattered in the sense of here's what the objective is by the end of the day, by the end of the week, do it the way you do it. And let's not have you sit at your hour, your desk for two hours unaffected because we said you had to be there at five, but you finished two hours ago. I agree hundred percent. And I, I would say that's one of the lessons that, that COVID has taught me and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, let's bring it back to chocolate. Um, talking about creating an environment in the workplace, um, let's talk about creating the environment in the individuals you serve. Um, as you said, it, it's greater than you. And um, when I buy my chocolate from you, um, I love the idea that there is someone else in the world that um, you know is it's changing their life. And like I said, maybe their children's life, the village life. Um, are, do you have any uh, favorite success stories about how the way that you're working with farmers um, has changed? Or you mentioned the grade school, the, the other, all the other pieces that you're putting together. Um, what are some of your favorite success stories? Um, in Tanzania, we help, we have helped the farmers um, facilitate what we call a vision of greatness. Um, and, you know, I've done this work with young people here in Springfield for a long time and with companies and organizations. And it's a process of vision writing that I learned from Ari Weinzweig, who's the co-founder of Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor. He's written books about this, but, but anyway, so we help this very poor or what you would look at um, and observe and think that they're very poor, at least financially. Um, they're a small group of farmers. There's uh, 40 farmers in the group. Uh, and we did a 10-year vision of greatness. And when I was one of the one of the nine points of their vision of greatness, one of them was early childhood education. So, you know, we raised the money for them to build a preschool, but they run it. And, and that is one of the hallmarks of our um, community development work is sustainability, like you. And so when I was there in May, we were reviewing the 10-year vision of greatness because what's just almost unbelievable to me is when we go back next summer then this is where I'll take I'll take local um, students from Southwest Missouri but when we go back we'll facilitate their, we'll start facilitating their next 10-year vision of greatness I, I, I'm just it's I, I can't believe it but it's there and what we were doing as we reviewed this 10-year vision one of the farmers stood up and said one of the things we're really proud of is if you remember back when we started our first 10-year vision we wanted um, all of our farmers in the cooperative, you know, 40 families to have houses that were um, able to withstand weather and that had a roof and um, not straw, you know, not straw houses, which many of them are in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And he looked around the room when I was in this meeting and he was talking and he said, isn't that right? Don't we all have um, stone houses now in solid roofs and all of them were talking and raising their hands and every single farmer now has a stone house and a solid roof and I can't say that I'm responsible for that they're the ones that are responsible for it yeah. I'm, but I'm but I'm a, a participant in it you know I'm part of it and that's a that's a, a story you know that is recent and one that I'll probably never forget. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And like you mentioned that just being the catalyst, right? They probably had that vision or dream amongst themselves and maybe weren't able to express it because they didn't know a means to the end. Um, but simply by creating that vision, creating goals to get there, you know, that's what we do with the families with the Drew Lewis Foundation is many of them have an unspoken dream that they have suppressed or they don't even put into the world because they either haven't seen anyone around them achieve it or they're afraid to speak it because it's just going to maybe be one more barrier, one more failure in their life. But when you put it on paper and when you have those social connections around you that have that same belief and you start helping each other build it, um, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, I have advocacy. I, I have this capacity to do it and I have community to help me get there. And now all of a sudden, yeah, you're like, oh, hey, that was... 10 years, we've reached it. Um, and often you reach it sooner than the 10 years. And it's like, oh, okay. Like what, what's the next thing? What's the next piece that we can accomplish together? So yeah, that's amazing. That's a powerful story. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, so if uh, I put a little pun into this. So if you think over the last um, almost 20 years that you've been doing this, what would you say your recipe for success has been? Well, um, as you might imagine, since I'm a lawyer, still I'm I'm still a lawyer, even though I'm a chocolate maker. Um, I, I I words are important to me, and so I would say, in answer to your question, that um, we have to define success. That's the first yeah. um, ingredient, shall we say? Is we need to really take some time and ask what that is before we ask ourselves, are we that yet? Are we what? And so one of the chapters in my book is titled, How Much is Enough? And this is a moving target in our lives. And so in our 20s, how much is enough is gonna be a different, um, there, there will be a different answer to that question when, when we're in our 40s or 60s. And so, but asking the question, how much is enough? is I think being able to ask the question and have an open conversation with oneself about what that is and what it looks like um, is success in and of itself. And so, <clears throat> because we know that if we don't ask the question, then we're struggling against, you know, how many likes is enough, how many, um, followers or newsletter subscribers is enough or how much sales is enough. Uh, and so this is, to me, I think this is one of the most important lessons that I've learned um, is, to, is to really spend time reflecting on um, the idea of enough. And I would say that's one very important thing. And the other thing is, for me, um, I think that the more we can connect to, um, let's, let's say, um, regardless of religion, if we can connect to our true self, as Thomas Merton would, would have said, or our soul, um, the more that we can connect to our essential being, our essential nature, 
then the greater opportunities we will have to intersect with um, the people who need us. We'll be able to see them. Um, we'll be able to see them with eyes that um, are particularly sensitive and more sensitive than they would have been without asking these questions. And so to me, I think it's very important for success as whether you're a business person or not, just as a human being and a professional <clears throat> is to get in touch with this part of ourselves. And for me, in the last 22 years, you know, I've been working on this and it's not a linear path at all. Um, never has been and never will be. And I've given up expecting it to be. And um, so I have, I would say in the last three years, maybe because of the pandemic, been forced to face interior um, issues um, of myself that I might not have explored but for the pandemic. And so the reason I'm using this in answer to your question is because the sort of the connotation of the question is kind of along the lines of maybe business success. And I think that we will put the idea and notion of business success in its place in due perspective, if we're able to first connect with ourselves. That to me is the foundation for everything else that flows from that. And it, by the way, that's a, that is a practice, you know, it's a daily practice. It's a sometimes hour by hour practice. And um, I think that, I think that um, the other thing I would say is that, um, that those who, are brokenhearted and are willing to look at that um, are particularly suited to receive help from others and help others um, in ways that they would never know without exploring the nature of their own broken heart. And so I think that um, executives and professionals and just students, people who are willing to take a look at that part of their lives um, have a greater likelihood of um, air quotes success yeah. than, than those who don't. That's a yeah. really long answer to your question. No, it's it's a great answer. Um, and it's it's an answer I would expect from you. I always love uh, talking to you and the um, you know, your love of learning and the the you know philosophical components that are put together. And it one of the ways that often we decide just determine success, as you mentioned, was financial. Um, but for so many, you know, it's the financial success is nothing without happiness and those deep connections. Um, and that's one of the things with the Drew Lewis Foundation and our, our program Rise, we um, measure, there's a score that we do that we ask individuals to rate their happiness. 
And um, we, we, every six months, we look at this data and we've seen improvements in um, housing. We've seen improvements in transportation, employment, income, all these factors are improving. And the one thing that troubles me the most is that the happiness scale has not shifted significantly. Right? We've had a little bit of a, a change, but not, not enough that we can say, you know, it's significant. That's the part that people's lives are changing. And so to I, me- I'm sorry to interrupt. May, may I ask, what is the, <clears throat> if you were to sort of crystallize the question and answer that are related to happiness, what, what are you measuring? Like, what's the question, if you were- so, I mean, the question is, it's a very simple question where we don't read anything into it. We just ask individuals um, to rate their, you know, how happy are they, just one to five. So there's no qualifying. We're not, we're not asking them to think about it as far as income, employment, family. So without giving any indication of how we want them to define that, um, it's just, we have two questions that one is, you know, do you feel that overall your um, physical health has improved one to five? Overall, do you feel that your happiness, um, your overall rate, your happiness, you know, one to five? And uh, so, yeah, we, we don't try to lay anything into it so that everyone can define happiness in their own way. Um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe Sean, that's the bit is that we've got to talk about what is happiness, because it might be culturally, most people are thinking that happiness comes from how do others view me in the financial success? How do others view me in the home that I live? So that, you know, are you the Joneses principle? Um, and so it might be that um, instead of us focusing a lot of our, uh, our the measurements that we have, our, our one to five scale on self-sufficiency, you know, do you have what it takes to make sure there's a safe roof over your head that you're, you know, you have healthcare and that sort. Um, but a lot of those are just, you know, here's an objective measurement, you have it or you don't. And uh, so, yeah, it's one where now after six years of seeing it not change, it's like, okay, if it's not changing, then can we change the message that we're delivering and help individuals realize that, um, you know, happiness in our program when we're asking, because we're always asking about money, how much how much are you making? We're comparing it to poverty because we do know for many of them, right? They, they do have to have income and meeting the basics. Um, but I think maybe we need to start having more conversation about, as you mentioned, how much is enough? What does that look like for you? It's, you don't have to live on Southeast Springfield in you know, a big home where you barely know your neighbors, that success is we have community. You have friends, you have people that have your back. For the first time you have this social group that believes in you, um, that, that feeling that you have that you don't know how to explain sometimes is simply happiness. Like the thing in your gut where you're like, oh, I feel pride or whatever. That's a sense of happiness. Um, so that, that's the one thing I want to dig in more with our families is this idea of, um, I was hoping that the world around them would evaluate happiness based on, you know, some other things that were happening in their lives. Um, give give me, yeah, so, for example, what? Like, give me an example. You were so for like one of our families um, that I'm thinking of who I, I kind of keep an eye on, on is hers changing. Um, she, she's nearly doubled her income and employment. 
She is back in school. Um, her children are um, in a larger home. They, you know, have their own bedrooms. There's um, no question about where food is coming from anymore. So you think about like Maslow's hierarchy, right? That, that safety is there. The housing is there. The next thing in that is um, she's building healthy relationships. She's, she has set boundaries and removed toxic, pe toxic people from her life. Um, she has a network of people that check in on her, someone that'll like mow the lawn if they know or that they've seen. Maybe she's posted something on social media about being ragged as she's running kids around as a single mom. And so when you think about all those things being met, you know, Maslow's hierarchy says at the top, finally, there's self-actualization and you have time to, to focus on yourself. And, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, somehow we're we're still missing that next piece yeah well um i think one of the things that you said early on perhaps might be the key and that is this notion of culture and um yeah. you know we, of course i i deal with culture because what is happiness in tanzania might be different than happiness in france yes. you know and what's different in rural Tanzania happiness might be different than urban happiness. And I also think that the Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, paradigm um, makes us, we, we sort of tend to view it as static and it, it isn't. It's really very dynamic, especially in this world of constant distraction of the internet and social media. And so I think that the, the, the you know, I think that it is dynamic is makes it hard for that question to be answered from, you know, month to month or year to year or day to day. Right. The other thing I think, too, is that <clears throat> that you're you're it's also possible possible that your timeline is too short and you might think, well, gee, gosh, we've been doing it for six years. That's a long time. And it is. But what's that, what's that going to look like in 20 years, you know, of right. measuring this number? Because really that's, that, that, that's one thing I think, and one, one of the reasons why, and specifically, I think it's um, maybe a not um, accurate representation of, quote, happiness of the, the people you serve is because, you know, we've been dealing with COVID for three years and COVID has had this massive, massive mental health disruption globally, globally. Yeah. You know, just yesterday, I was reading about children globally who have lost a parent or a primary caregiver. You know, it's like 10 million kids that have yeah. 10 million. So, I mean, so there's a, there is a very particular effect that COVID has had on, let's just say one of your families, you know, we could pick that family and they might initially say, no, you know, nobody, you know, my, my person got it and they recovered from it. I promise you, if we were to talk to them for 30 minutes, we would be able to peel back the onion of a lot of impact that COVID has had on their lives. That's their individual lives. Yeah. Then when we look at this globally and we, looked at, we, and we look at the collective mental health effect on the collective, we could get, I'm not trying to be new age about it, but in the, in the universal sense, you know, planetary, you know, we can say there's a, there is a heaviness related to this collective um, emotional well-being that has taken a significant gut punch. 
And so when you take the individual and the collective, I think it's really, really hard for one of your um, clients to be able to answer that question, to even know, to even, right. I mean, if, if yeah. I, if you were to ask me that question, I'd be like, I, would, I, I was going to maybe use a word that you'd have to edit out, but I don't know. I don't blanking know. I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, things are too up in the air. I can't ask me later. Yeah. You told me you were a seven and a half, half out of 10 in life. When we first, you know, before we were recording, I said, how are you doing? You said, I don't know. I'm about a seven and a half out of 10. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it is right. right. I don't, that's a really hard question to ask today. Yeah. Yes. Tomorrow, maybe you get amazing news. You're like, man, today's a nine. I'm on, I'm, I'm high on about well, nine. Yes. But let, let, let me also say this too. There is an age demographic of the people that you serve. There is certain strata, you know, and in that strata age demographic, the, the, the approach that one takes to answer the question you're asking about happiness is different. Mm -hmm. So when yes. your 20 year old group <clears throat> is going to approach the answer to that question differently than your 50 year old group. Yeah. You know? And so I, I, but I think it's, I, I'm so happy that you're, you know, I talk to nonprofits all the time and they, they would love to be able to have six years worth of data on, yeah. you know, that's like a gold mine. Yes. Because it's important that you're, you know, just that you're at, like I said, you know, it's just important. I think, and, and so noble that you're asking the question, you're measuring it, you're keeping track of it. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really important that you're doing this and, but, you know, there might be other questions that could maybe get at what it is that you're. Yeah. For sure. Well, so we're going to, we're pulling lots of data now that we have this nice, um, this longitudinal for, you know, some individuals may only be six months in, but some are six, seven years in. Um, and so we're really starting to look at those um, by age, right? By age, by ethnicity. Um, so we've got lots of different ways to break up this data. During COVID, instead of collecting every six months, we started collecting monthly. And so to see the chart of, you know, when we had lockdown and psychosocial factors just fell and how they came back and how long it took for things to come back. So we're really excited to dig into that with the between 40 and 50 individuals that let us follow them like with so many questions for so long. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to, to pull that out and, and see what all um, we can we can glean from that. Um, but we are running out of time. I feel like you and I need part two, three, and four. There's so much we could talk about. Um, but I do want to wrap up with um, one of my favorites that you have made. And so for uh, when um, Andy's frozen custard started carrying Askinosi chocolate, I was so excited because I had a favorite concrete and that concrete was raspberry. And sometimes I would add, hey, you've got the, the, the uh, coupon. I have, I, have a free, I have a free cone right here. Yeah, well, you'll have to upgrade and try this one because it's uh, I started getting with my raspberry, um, the Askinosi chocolate in it, and then some almonds, and then you came out with the 
raspberry Askinosi chocolate bar. And so I get to have my favorite sometimes in just chocolate form where, you know, if ever you want to add some almonds to that version, um, let me know. And I, I will buy cases of that one too. But uh, that is one of my favorites. So if anyone's not tried um, Askinosi chocolate, make sure you do. As Sean said, the, the quality is amazing. Um, but the, the people who are behind it are even more valuable to our community um, and to the individuals that they touch. So any last things you want to share with us? Well, let me ask you a question. I know we're running out of time, but I'm, you know, it's, you're a, um, you, you know, you have a, a doctorate in, in physiology, if I'm not mistaken. Health sciences, yeah. Health sciences. So, and I'm really glad that you mentioned Andy's frozen. I mean, we all know that chocolate, especially dark chocolate is very healthy and in, in, in the right amount, you know, can be a good adjunct to a healthy diet. Um, but frozen custard, often people think, oh my Lord, you know, that's 900 calories. I'm gonna, I, I'm not doing that. But I'm really glad you mentioned that um, as a person who really, you know, believes and advocates in, in well-being. And so I was gonna ask you, what is, there must be some physiological thing with the so-called um, cheat day. And one of the things that I've noticed is, especially during COVID, I'm, I've really, I've kind of upped my, my uh, exercise game. Yeah. Well, no, I mean- oh, I, got, I, uh, the yeah. exercise, I have, I have the cheating, but- Then <laughs> I get it. And, and but, but I've really, what I've noticed though is I can go pretty crazy during a 12 hour period, you know, on the cheat day. And it doesn't really have any effect yeah. that I'm seeing, at least physiologically. Why is that? And it's pretty cool. So I want to say to your listeners, please, if you have an Andes in your location, they're great people. They're a great company and they support our community. And, um, and, and I think it's, it's kind of a nice treat that you can go yeah. have that and Askinosi chocolate together. And, but it really, what is that physiologically? It kind of works out like that. It is. So it's in moderation, right? So if you're most days, um, you're eating well, eating correctly, um, you know, we know that you're not going to undo six weeks of really good work by having one cheat day. And even psychologically, individuals know they're throughout the week, they're going to be less likely to add a dessert, a soda, empty sugar and calories because they know then, okay, on Saturday or Sunday, whatever it is, I'm going to have my pizza and my soda, and my drinks. Um, if six days out of the week, you are not having the candy bar, or the soda, that ends up being three, 400 calories a day times six. We're talking about 2,500 extra calories or more that mm -hmm. you would have been consuming in your week. The likeliness that you're adding an extra 2,500, 3,000 calories in one day is unlikely. And mm -hmm. so really by doing that, overall, the caloric intake is decreased throughout the week. Um, and in one day, unless you are like chugging two liters and, and you know, eating a, a bag full of full-size uh, Snicker bars and maybe a couple Askinosi chocolate in your um, Andes, you're not going to undo all the other things that you well, avoided throughout the week. Well, and maybe what we should do, let's to, to sort of wrap this up, um, the maybe what we need to do, we know that chocolate has something called anandamide in it. An, an, an andamide, an andamide has it's it's a molecule, but we we um, an andamide has been called the pleasure chemical, 
and multiple studies have talked about, you know, yeah. there's sort of feel good feeling eating, you know, some, a little square of dark chocolate. So maybe what we need to do is we need to have years of data asking your clients, you know, 10 minutes after they've had a square of, of dark chocolate, how they feel, are they happy yes. than they were? Might happiness. Yes, I know that might, that, that could really yeah Yeah. i'll give them some uh i'll give them a chocolate bar before they do our survey and that might be the answer (laughs) i i think my families would be all for this that that would be a nice treat well i do have to run because i've got to actually my the other hat i wear is faculty at missouri state and i've got a class to get to Mm -hmm. on uh, teaching them about some of these healthy behaviors that they could do so sean i want to thank you for your time today it's like i said it's it's so uplifting empowering motivating Uh, to know that there's other individuals like you in our community around the world. And we thank you for all the work that you do. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, Drew. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Enrichment Today podcast. If you like 